Well, hey, Baylife, it is so good to be with you. If you would do me a favor and turn in your Bible to the book of First Peter, we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, 3. And today we're continuing a series that Pastor Mark began a number of weeks ago called What Really Matters. With everything going on in our world, I think a lot of us have found ourselves grounded in some ways stuck at home and unable to do so many of the things that we now realize we took for granted, whether that was going out to the movies or working from a coffee shop or even just having the opportunity to meet up with some friends for dinner. And if you're like me, it's possible that at first this was kind of a welcome relief. It was something of a break from the hustle and the bustle and the busyness of daily life. But I would imagine that as time has gone on, you have found yourself alone with your thoughts in ways that are uncomfortable. Uh, Maybe you've found yourself confronting some issues that you might have been able to ignore or cover up with the busyness of life. And as so often happens in times of crisis, I think many of us are beginning to take stock of our lives Many of us are beginning to reconsider what is most important, maybe even reevaluate some of our priorities to say, hey, when when this is all over, I think life is going to look a little bit different for me. Some of the things that I thought were important six months ago might not actually be so. And it's in light of all of this that we've been walking through this series, What Really Matters. We've been addressing the things that are actually important of first importance, talking about what is most significant for us as believers, the the, the most important things in life, the gospel, the work of Jesus, the promises of God. And we've been talking about how these foundational realities can help us to face our current moment. And so Mark and I have decided that as we continue this series, we want to tackle the next couple weeks through the lens of the first few chapters of the book of 1 Peter. Now, it's altogether possible that you are not familiar with 1 Peter. The reality is that there's a lot of people in the Western church that know very little about this portion of the New Testament. Over the last few days, I've been kind of sifting through the commentaries and and getting ready for this series. And one of the things that, that people from all backgrounds say is that this book is hardly preached at all in American churches. And it's rarely preached in European churches. In fact, one of, the, one of the scholars I've been leaning on really heavily is a seminary professor named Karen Jobes, and she teaches at Wheaton College up in Illinois. And in her commentary on 1 Peter, she tells the story of teaching this book to a, a group of students training to be pastors. And one of the students in her class at Wheaton actually said, you know, maybe this book is just not for us right now. Maybe it just needs to sit on a shelf and wait for another generation of Christians where it feels a little bit more relevant. The reason for that is because 1 Peter is a book about suffering. Specifically, the the suffering that comes from persecution. The sort of persecution that we have not experienced in this country. But it has been a book that is deeply loved by churches where Christians are a persecuted minority. It's been a book that has encouraged the, the churches in Africa and in the Middle East in profound and significant ways as they've considered what it means to count the cost of following Christ. 
it might be helpful to have just a little bit of background about what it is that we're stepping into over these next few weeks. You see, the original readers of First Peter were Christians scattered through what in our modern era is called Turkey. They were scattered through the, the region of Asia Minor. And Peter lists the, the recipients of this letter as those who are living in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, Bithynia, and a couple other regions. And that sounds like a relatively tight-knit group of cities, but the reality is that these cities were scattered across an area that was the size of California. And these cities weren't particularly large. So you've got to imagine that the Christians that were in these communities felt isolated. They were distant from one another. They felt like they were on their own as they faced the challenges of persecution because the life that they had been born into because of their faith in Jesus made them different. It made them people who were looked on with hostility and scorn by their neighbors. And so Peter writes this letter to this church in this vast region to remind them that they are not alone. And that even in their suffering, they are sharing in the work of Jesus. Peter writes to a people who are being tempted to abandon their faith because life has grown difficult. And following Jesus is costly. Here's the amazing thing that church history tells us. As we look 100 years, 200 years, 300 years after this letter was written, some of the most important pastors and theologians and Christian leaders all emerged from this region full of Christians who were isolated, persecuted, and discouraged. People like Basil the Great, people like Gregory of Nyssa, and even back in New Testament times, Aquila, the husband of Priscilla, who's mentioned in the book of Acts, these believers all came from this region of Christians who felt isolated and discouraged. And many commentators agree that the reason why this particular area produced such profound Christian leaders is because Peter's recipients listened to what he said. The, the parents and the grandparents and the great-grandparents of people like Basil or Gregory of Nyssa, they listened to Peter and they lived lives of faithfulness even when the road was difficult even when the road grew lonely. And even though we're not facing persecution like Peter's original audience, I think First Peter is still important for us because Peter's goal here is to encourage discouraged Christians, to show them how the gospel forms and informs the way that we interact with our friends and our neighbors, how the gospel gives us hope in the face of hopeless situations. In Baylife, we desperately need that in our present moment, don't we? Maybe, just maybe, our faithfulness to Jesus now will function like the faithfulness of these Christians that Peter wrote to, and it will become the soil from which the next generation of great and courageous Christian leaders grows. So if you have your Bible, do me a favor once again and open it to the book of First Peter. And let me just read our passage for today. It comes from First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion 
in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience of Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling of his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So Peter begins his address to these churches in Asia Minor by referring to them as the elect exiles of the dispersion. Some translations, maybe the Bible that you have in front of you, uh, refers to them as the elect foreigners of the dispersion. And here he's sort of drawing on all of these Old Testament pictures and images and metaphors. One of the things that, that First Peter scholars all agree on is that the people he's writing to are not literally exiles. They're not literally foreigners. They were, were many of them born in the cities in which they currently live. But in this metaphorical way, now that they belong to Jesus, they don't quite feel at home in the place that used to be their home. I feel like I've, I've gotten a little bit of a better perspective on this, this picture that Peter is drawing on over the years that I've gotten to know my wife. Um, if you don't know this, my, my wife was born in Argentina and was there until she was about five years old when her family felt the call of God to move to the United States uh, to work on planting a church. And so they, they moved here when she was five and, and became citizens and established their life here in the United States. And so for 20 years, she has grown up in this particular culture with sort of these particular practices and customs that, that we have here in our country. But in 2018, she made the decision to go back to Argentina for a semester to study theology. And so she, she made this journey back for about three months and was excited about the opportunity of going home, going back to the culture she was born into, the place that she grew up, the place that issued her birth certificate, but what she experienced was this strange tension. Because in the most literal sense, Argentina was her home. That's where she was born. But there were so many ways in which she felt out of place. Like her Argentine friends and family didn't eat dinner until 10 o'clock at night. Which is not normally a custom for us here. If you're eating at 10 o'clock at night, it's probably because you've decided to make like a second run to Taco Bell or something like that. So six or seven o'clock would roll around, and because she was used to the customs that we have here, she was hungry, and everybody else hadn't even thought about dinner yet. Or she would be invited to hang out with friends or, or people that she was meeting through school, and she would expect to hang out for two or three hours. And what she would find is that in, in Argentina, the custom was that you would hang out for a lot longer than that. And so it would be midnight, one, two, three in the morning, six, seven hours of hanging out. And she would go, I really want to go to bed. But culturally, that was just not what happened. And so she found herself in this strange place. Technically speaking, she was at home, but culturally, there was some discomfort there. This is the experience of Peter's readers. This is why he refers to them as foreigners and exiles. They had been born and raised in these cities with all of their pagan practices, all of their debauchery, all of their idolatry. But when they had become Christians, their culture changed. And suddenly, they were out of place in their home country. The reality is that if you're doing Christianity right, this should also be your experience. Because the culture of the world is not the same as the culture of the kingdom of God. 
The customs of this age are not the same as the customs of the age to come. When we become Christians, in some way we become foreigners in our own land. And so while we're in the world, we don't react to the circumstances of the world in the same way that the world does. We don't mourn like those who mourn. We don't date like the world dates. We don't treat our neighbors the way that the world does. We don't run our businesses the way that the wider society and culture does. We don't treat our spouses and our children the same way. We live as citizens of God's kingdom wherever we find ourselves. And sometimes this produces attention, which is exactly what Peter's recipients are experiencing. So how does this change come about? Well, that's what Peter turns his attention to next. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, the reality is that there's a lot here. Uh, Mark and I had initially talked about me doing the first 12 verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. And I realize we're probably going to get through the first two or three. There's probably a year's worth of sermons packed into these first two verses. But, but for our time together, let's just focus on a few things. Peter says that Christians have been saved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And this would have been a profound source of comfort for the believers that Peter was writing to. These are people who are feeling isolated, who feel like strangers in their own home, who feel as though nobody really knows them or understands them and and have attracted the scorn and the derision of their neighbors. And it's to these people that Peter says, even though you don't feel known by the people around you, you are known by God. And more than that, that their salvation has happened according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, the the, the Greek here is only used a few other times in the New Testament, one of which is Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And, And he says in that sermon that the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus happened according to God's foreknowledge. Whenever this phrase is mentioned in scripture, it's not some sort of vague intellectual knowledge on God's part. It's not as though God says, well, I knew that these people would pick me, and so I guess I'll just let it play out that way, and I guess that's what I'm stuck with. But it's, it's a personal action. It refers to God's choice that these elect exiles, they have been chosen by God through his definite action, and that should comfort us Because if we're in Christ, the same thing is true of us. To know that in spite of all the challenges and all the tribulations that life brings, God has chosen us. What a difference choice makes with regard to passion and fervor and joy and excitement. When I graduated from high school, I applied to three colleges Uh, One was FSU, the other one was UCF, and the last one was USF. And the reality is I only did that because I wanted to tell my friends that I'd applied to more than one college. I knew that even if I got into any of the out-of-town ones, there was no way that I could afford to go. And I didn't get into any of the out-of-town ones. So I ended up going to USF. And And I loved my education there. I think it's a great school. 
But, but I'll just admit that like my time in college was not particularly marked by school spirit. I wasn't going to football games. I wasn't wearing like USF Bulls t-shirts and, and you know, celebrating the school that I went to because the reality is I didn't really choose it. It was, it was the default setting. It was the only place that I could go. And so that's where I ended up. But you can see the difference in passion that comes when somebody gets into the school of their dreams. The, the school that they've been excited about, the school that their family has gone to. When they get to go to the college that they've always wanted to, you see a passion that's born out of the fact that they chose this. And that passion, I think, becomes even more um, intense when not only did they choose this school, but this school chose them. When they get offered some sort of a, a scholarship or an incentive to go, that choice fuels a passion. Being chosen produces joy. And to these discouraged Christians, Peter says, listen, you have been chosen. You've been chosen by the Father. And it's because we've been chosen by the Father that he goes on to say that this has happened in the sanctification of the Spirit. And that is the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, to sanctify us, which is kind of a, a fancy way of saying it's to make us more holy. It's to teach us how to live righteous lives. This is the job of the Spirit. And that's where Peter goes. He says, we've been sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Obedience is probably the most difficult part of the Christian life. It's the part that most of us leave out, ignore, or avoid. And, and many of us unintentionally are operating with a gospel that leaves out the importance of obedience. And we apply that to our evangelism. It becomes too narrow. We look at the Great Commission that says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so we set about the task of doing it. We tell people that Jesus died for their sins. We get them to pray the sinner's prayer. We get them baptized. And then we pat ourselves on the back. We add another name to the list. And we think that we've done exactly what Jesus asked of us. But I wonder if you noticed, even as I quoted the Great Commission, that I left out the final portion of it. Most of us don't even realize it because we've so forgotten about it. The words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel are this, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The gospel is not just about intellectual assent. It is about physical obedience to the teachings of Jesus. And Peter says that the Spirit's work in us is to enable us to obey, not just to believe, but to walk in accordance with what we believe. A gospel that doesn't call us to obey Jesus' commands is no gospel at all. Baylife, you were called by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, so that you could walk in obedience. Not so that you could be vaguely spiritual, but so that you could obey Jesus and become more like him. Even when life is hard, even when things are difficult. Peter says this was done for the sprinkling with his blood. 
And that's a phrase that maybe strikes us as odd. He's, he's drawing on the Old Testament again. You see, in the book of Exodus, when, when God made a covenant with the people of Israel and with Moses, he did this by a sprinkling of blood. This is a big theme in the Bible, this theme of covenants. The Bible is not just trying to tell us that God exists, but that God both exists and that he enters into permanent and binding agreements with his people. And we don't really use that, that language of covenants in our day and age anymore, but I think there's still one area of society where we can kind of understand what a covenant is in the biblical sense, and that's marriage. You know, when my wife and I decided to get married and I, I started having conversations with friends of mine, many of whom were not believers there was still this sort of understanding for them. Marriage is a big deal. Like I had friends who had dated for years. They'd been with their partner for, for five, six, seven, eight, nine years. And, and when I said that Mickey and I were getting married, they said, I don't know that I'm ready for that. that that's a huge commitment. Because there's this understanding in our culture, even now, that somehow marriage cuts deeper that it goes beyond a normal romantic relationship. In the most biblical sense of the word, marriage is a covenant. It's deeper than a promise. It's more than a contract. And, and I've only been married for six months now. I realize that there's so many of us who have been married for so much longer and have learned this to, to such a greater extent than I have. But even in that limited time of six months, I've seen the way that this covenant reorients my relationship with everyone and everything. My relationship with Mickey is not the same as it was when we were dating or even when we were engaged. The money that I make through my job goes into a joint bank account. We decide how to spend it instead of me deciding how to spend it. My time is no longer just my own. I can't go out and fill up all my free time hanging out with friends. We have a conversation. We make decisions together about that. But it's not just our relationship that has changed, Mickey and I's. But our relationship with everybody else has changed too because of this covenant. So we love our parents. We think they're godly people who offer wise and godly advice and yet they are not in charge of us in the same way that they were before we entered this covenant. Our relationship has changed, not just with each other, but with the outside world as well. The, the, the point in all of this is that when you step into a covenant, your relationship with everything changes. Your relationship with the person you're in covenant with changes. Your relationship with the wider world changes. And this is what happens for us when we are adopted into the family of God. By, by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. We have entered a covenant and that changes everything. We live in the world now. But we're not of the world any longer. We're citizens of a better kingdom with different customs. And while we're in the world, just like Peter's audience, we will face the same triumphs and trials that our neighbors do. We are all stuck at home just like everybody else. Many of us are facing the terrifying prospect of losing our jobs, just like many of our non-believing friends. 
And more than a few of us are trying to figure out how to help our kids finish the 2020 school year from the living room. We face the same trials, but we don't face them in the same way. And and I just wonder what sort of witness we could have as a church if we approached the trials and the struggles that are in front of us like the people of a covenant. If we approach the days ahead like citizens of the kingdom. Instead of going stir crazy during our time spent at home, what would, it, what would it do for the witness of the church if we use this time to find creative ways in our homes to build spiritual disciplines, to develop a rich prayer life, to dive deeper into scripture? In the face of, of the joblessness that so many of our friends and neighbors are facing, what sort of witness would the church have if we looked for opportunities to meet the needs of those who have lost their source of income? And if we, when we face that terrifying reality, if we faced it with the courage that comes from serving a God who provides and is faithful to his promises, what would it say about us as Christians if instead of complaining about being cooped up with our kids, we we looked at this as an opportunity to spend more time with them, to invest in their spiritual growth rather than just voicing our frustration with how exhausting it is. Brothers and sisters, we live in difficult days. I'm not gonna pretend as though we don't, but the church has faced difficult days before. The churches in Asia that Peter wrote to were suffering. But we know from history that as they face these trials, as covenant people with faithfulness, their children and their children's children grew up to be heroes of the faith. May we face our moment with courage. May we face it with endurance. May we face it with holiness. And may we face it with the confidence that comes from being chosen by God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, and sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. Would you pray with me as we continue in our time together? Father, we come before you and we thank you for your wisdom, for your kindness, for your goodness, for your faithfulness. We thank you that that we can rest in the fact that you have chosen us, that we can rest in the fact that nothing escapes your wisdom or your knowledge. Father, teach us to be a people who face the trials and tribulations differently in light of what matters most, that the blood of Jesus has brought us into right relationship with you. Teach us to be a people who face the days ahead in obedience to Christ with confidence, with courage, with holiness, with faith. Teach us to be a people who face frustration and discouragement with uncommon joy and a deep love for Christ and his work. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. We say, Amen.